Well, once again, brethren, as we seek to pick up the threads from the previous lecture and move forward, let's seek the help of God for his presence and his blessing upon us. Our Father, you have told us in your word that in everything we are to give thanks, for this is your will for us in Christ Jesus. And we give you thanks for the sense of your help and the consciousness of your presence with us in our previous hours together. And yet we acknowledge that we need fresh grace for this hour, grace for me as I seek to Open up your word and to address these crucial issues. Grace for my brethren as they seek with the spirit of the Bereans to receive the word with readiness of mind and yet to search the scriptures to see indeed if these things be so. And so we look to you that out of the fullness of grace that is in your son, you would minister to us according to our need We look to you, believing that having spared not your Son, but having delivered him up for us all, you will with him freely give us all things. And therefore, in the light of the donation of your Son and the pledge of everything with him, we trust you to help us and to meet with us. Hear us as we draw near. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this hour, we will attempt to pick up the threads of where we left off in the uh, previous hour, uh, dealing with this aspect of the qualifications that will make a man fit for the pastoral office, those that are connected with what I have described as the clear indications of an enlarged, balanced, and tested Christian experience. Having explained what I mean by the words Christian experience, clear indications, and then the descriptive words enlarged, balanced, and tested, we then began to identify some of the major aspects of such Christian experience. And at the head of the list of those particular aspects of Christian experience, I asserted that none was more vital than a proven love for and devoted attachment to the person of Christ. And having sought to establish that from the Scriptures, we began to take up the second of the major aspects of this Christian experience, and I identified it with these words, a personal and perceptive acquaintance with the fundamental workings of sin and grace in the soul. I sought to see or demonstrate that there was a paradigm in the apostolic statement that the things we've seen and heard and handled, these are the things we pass on to others. And then we were on the threshold of my setting before you what to me are some choice validations of this perspective and these concerns from some of the masters both of the past and even some more contemporary. And at the head of the list of these matters I suggested was John Owen, but certainly not 
exclusively John Owen. In Bridges, the Christian Ministry, on page 27, Bridges writes, It is evident, however, that this ministerial standard presupposes a deep tone of experimental and devotional character, habitually exercised in self-denial, prominently marked by love to the Savior, there's the confirming voice, and to the souls of sinners, and practically exhibited in a blameless consistency of conduct. The apostle justly pronounces a novice to be disqualified for this holy work. The bare existence of religion provides but slender materials for this important function. A babe in grace and knowledge is palpably incompetent to become a teacher of babes, much more a guide of the fathers. The school of adversity, of discipline, and of experience, united with study and heavenly influence, can alone give the tongue of the learned some measure of eminence and an habitual aim toward greater eminence are indispensable for ministerial completeness, nor will they fail to be acquired in the diligent use of the means of divine appointment, the word of God, and prayer. And now there are many sections in Owen that could be brought as a confirming witness, I recommend for your perusal in another setting, volume 16, pages 75 and 76, volume 9, pages 454 to 455. But let me give you one of the searching examples found in volume 16, pages 85 and 86. It belongs unto them, that is, those that would assume the pastoral office, to be ready, willing, and able to comfort, relieve, and refresh those that are tempted, tossed, wearied with fears and grounds of disconsolation in times of trial and desertion. The tongue of the learned is required of them, quoting from Isaiah 50, where Messiah says that God has given to him the tongue of the learned, they should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. One excellent qualification of our Lord Jesus Christ in the discharge of his priestly office now in heaven is that he is touched with the sense of our infirmities and knows how to succor them that are tempted. His whole flock in this world are a company of tempted ones. His own life on earth he calls the time of his temptation. And those who have the charge of his flock under him ought to have a sense of their infirmities and endeavor in an especial manner to succor them that are tempted. But amongst them, there are some always that are cast under darkness and disconsolations in a peculiar manner. Some at the entrance of their conversion unto God, whilst they have a deep sense of the terror of the Lord, the sharpness of conviction, and the uncertainty of their condition. Some are relapsed into sin or omissions of duties. Some under great, sore, and lasting afflictions. Some under pressing, urgent, particular occasions. Some on sovereign, divine 
desertions, and some through the buffetings of Satan and the injection of blasphemous thoughts into their minds with many other occasions of a like nature. And then Owen goes on to say that if we are to be competent pastors, we must attain some degree of skill born out of experience in ministering to this broad spectrum of the needs of God's people. And he goes on to say toward the end of page 86, the proper ways whereby pastors and teachers must obtain this skill and understanding are by diligent study of the scriptures, meditation thereon, fervent prayer, experience of spiritual things, and temptations in their own souls, with a prudent observation of the manner of God's dealings with others and the ways of the opposition made to the work of his grace in them. Without these things, all pretenses unto this ability and duty of the pastoral office are vain. Whence it is that the whole work of it is much neglected. And while we can receive help in many of these things from such sources as Baxter's directory, unless to some degree the thing passes through the crucible of our own experience and is to some degree smothered with our fingerprints and has the smell of our unique spiritual body odor, it will lack grip and thrust and persuasiveness with our people. And now from a more contemporary, James Stewart in his work on preaching, page 29. It is one of the mightiest safeguards of a man's ministry to be aware of that hungry demand for reality breaking inarticulately from the hearts of those to whom he ministers. For that cry puts everything shoddy second-hand or artificial, utterly to shame. You do not need to be eloquent or clever or sensational or skilled in dialectic, but you must be real. To fail there is to fail abysmally and tragically. It is to damage incalculably the cause you represent. Anything savoring of unreality in the pulpit is a double offense. Let me urge upon you two considerations. On the one hand, you will be preaching to people who've been grappling all the week with stern realities. Behind a congregation assembling for worship, there are stories of heavy anxiety and fierce temptation, of loneliness and heroism, of overwork, lack of work physical strain and mental wear and tear, we wrong and we mock their struggles if we preach our gospel in abstraction from the hard facts of their experience. It is not only that they can detect at once the hollowness of such a performance, though that is true, there is also this, that to offer pedantic theorizings and academic irrelevances to souls wrestling in the dark is to sin against the Lord who died for them and yearns for their redeeming. But there is a further, his second, indictment of unreality in preaching. This is rooted not so much in the hard problems men and women are facing. 
what Whittier called this maddening maze of things as in the very nature of the Christian faith itself. The gospel is quite shattering in its realism. It shirks nothing. It never seeks to gloss over the dark perplexities of fate, frustration, sin, and death, or to gild unpalatable facts with a coating of pious verbiage or facile consolation. It never sidetracks uncomfortable questions with some naive and cheerful cliché about the providence, about providence or progress. It gazes open-eyed at the most menacing and savage circumstances that life can show. It is utterly courageous. Its strength is the complete absence of utopian illusions. It thrusts Golgotha upon men's vision and bids them look at that. The very last charge which can be brought against the gospel is that of sentimentality, of blinking the facts. It is devastating in its veracity, and its realism is a consuming fire. This is the message with which we are charged. How grievous the fault if in our hands it becomes tainted with unreality. And then from Samuel Miller's an able and faithful ministry, these choice words. How can a man who knows only the theory of religion undertake to be a practical guide in spiritual things? How can he adapt his instructions to all the varieties of Christian experience? How can he direct the awakened, the inquiring, the tempted, and the doubting? How can he feed the sheep and the lambs of Christ? How can he sympathize with mourners in Zion How can he comfort others with those consolations wherewith he himself has never been comforted of God? He cannot possibly perform as he ought any of these duties, and yet they are the most precious and interesting parts of ministerial work. However gigantic his intellectual powers, however deep and various and accurate his learning, he is not able, in relation to any of these points, to teach others seeing he is not taught himself. If he makes the attempt, it will be the blind leading the blind. And of this, unerring wisdom has told us the consequence. Now let me give a word of caution, lest some of you younger men come into bondage. I can remember when reading a number of Christian biographies as a young Christian, and seeing the graces that came out in matured, tested, tried, experienced preachers in my early 20s, praying, oh God, give me that kind of compassion that can weep with people in this situation and, and moan with them in this and all the rest. And I was striving to somehow have at age 22 what these men had at age 50 and 60. And there are certain aspects of this experiential walk with God and the cultivation of our graces in the midst of the various situations. We can't bring into the soul of someone in his 20s the cumulative experience of someone who's walked with God for decades. However, however, 
the basic issues that touch the struggles, the joys, the disappointments, the perplexities of the Christian life, in a real sense, we'll get introduced to the major issues very early in our Christian experience if we're real. If we're real. Now, the stock of understanding and ability to empathize will be limited by our youthfulness. Granted, But just as Paul could say to Timothy, Timothy, let no one think lightly of you because you are a relatively young man, but as a relatively young man, be an example of the believers in faith. You won't have the faith of a man who's been trusting God and believing God for 50 years, but you can have a measure of faith that is exemplary to the people of God in faith, in love, in word, in purity. Well, in the same way, brethren, I believe from the Scriptures we learn that God tests all of His people. Paul was not talking to matured saints when he said, coming back through the areas of his missionary labors, he said, I want you young believers to be certain of one thing. If you don't get anything else, get this. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Acts 14, 22. That was his one-note Charlie message to new believers, assuming that God would test them and prove them. Are they stony ground hearers? Are they thorny ground hearers? Are they temporary believers? Are they the real thing? God's going to test them to prove the reality of their faith. And so while seeking to give that word of qualification, lest some of you be discouraged, On the other hand, if you are having real dealings with God in the realm of the operations of His grace in the now, but the not yet, you're going to know what it is to struggle with certain veins of your remaining sin that seem to be peculiarly stubborn and resistant to the sanctifying influences of the Holy Spirit. It's going to drive you to Owen Volume 6, With the prayer, oh God, help me to know what are my tools of mortification? What are the hindrances? And God will instruct you. And you don't need to be 50 years of age then to enter in to the struggles of a 50-year-old saint who is struggling with a pocket of unusually stubborn remaining sin. Can I draw near to those who must nurse a loved one? to a grave over many years in a way I couldn't seven years ago? Of course I can. Of course I can. Of course. And I couldn't tell God, take away my first wife with cancer when I'm 20 so I can mature in being able to empathize. No, you can't hurry up what God has wisely woven into the unique plan and texture and fabric of his dealings with you. But I insist that there must be some degree of personal and perceptive acquaintance with the fundamental workings of sin and grace in the soul if we are to be true shepherds, feeding and shepherding God's sheep and God's lambs. And then you have a couple of other quotes that validate this from the past as well. I'll not take time to read them. Now we come in the third place. Among these matters that are an essential component or ingredient 
of this balanced Christian experience is what I am calling a chastened disposition of humility and self-distrust. A chastened disposition of humility and self-distrust. I wrestled with how to express this aspect of Christian experience. However, I believe these words at least are somewhat accurate in capturing what I want to say. A man, by God's own personal disciplines, if he's to be useful in the work of the ministry, if indeed he's biblically qualified, must be brought to the place where he cries out in the face of the task, who is sufficient for these things? That was what the Apostle Paul did as he, by the Spirit, is writing about the nature, the privileges, the responsibilities of new covenant ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Such confidence we have through Christ to Godward. Notice, he had been driven out of any confidence in himself. But his confidence is through Christ, Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to account anything as from ourselves. When we think of what is needed for the task, he said we do not look for any one of those things as having its root in the chambers of what we are by nature. Account anything is from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. We must have some fundamental, personal, experiential consciousness. I am not sufficient of myself. In direct contrast to the idea, you know, I'm glad that the Lord and his people finally got around to realizing what a wonderful commodity has been waiting in the wings to be thrust upon the church to be so greatly used of God. I always get queasy when young men in all seriousness counsel with me and tell me, well, you know, Pastor Martin, I just have a, a sense that God has something very special for me to do in the work of God. I'm very tempted to say, my friend, if that's an accurate expression of where you are, let me be a prophet and tell you something. God's got some special things to do with you, to humble you, and bring you to the place where you say, I'm nothing. And if God ever does anything with me, it'll be all of grace and all of his power. Can be a very subtle thing to think it's a spiritual thing to want to be greatly used of God in some unusual way. The Apostle Paul said, Who is sufficient? We are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything as from ourselves or our Lord's words in John 15 and verse 5. Without me, apart from me, severed from me, without my life, experientially, existentially, flowing into and through you in service without me, you can do nothing. And surely we see in Scripture how the Lord had to teach 
that man Peter, for whom he had great things in store. He's going to be the instrument of God to open the door to the kingdom for the Gentiles. He's going to be greatly and especially used. So what does God have to do? God has to engineer the devil's desires and the Lord's prayers and God's purposes to take this man who looks around when the Lord says, this night, this night, the shepherd's going to be struck, the sheep will be scattered, you're all going to deny me. (laughs) Ha ha! This bunch of weaklings, Lord, they may not this guy. Peter! Peter's resolve will carry him through. Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you all like wheat. But Simon, I prayed especially for you. You know the nuances in, in the subjects there, the plural and the singular. I prayed for you especially, Simon. And my prayer is not that the devil may not have a temporary victory. No, I'm going to allow him to do it because I have a greater end in view. A greater end in view. I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. Your courage will fail. I didn't pray to my father that your courage fail not. This courage born out of a lack of knowledge of who and what you really are that you need to know if I'm going to use you as I intend to use you. You need to know the discipline of failure. But I'm praying that your faith fail not, and when you are turned again, strengthen your brethren. And one of the greatest expressions of the fulfillment of that directive of our Lord is the first epistle of Peter. And one of the great emphases as he writes to the suffering saints in Asia Minor is not only consolation in suffering, but the unique place of humility in the Christian life. It's Peter who says, yea, all of you be clothed with humility. Let it not just be some kind of an oblique grace that occasionally is evident. When people turn to you and look to you and say, oh, you're dressed today in the garb of humility. And they see you tomorrow. And they see you dressed, clothed with humility, adorned with humility. And it's this reality that I'm seeking to capture when I say... One of the requirements of tested, proven Christian experience is this chastened disposition of humility and self-distrust. It's clear from the experience of the Apostle Paul that even this man had to be brought back again to this fundamental reality again and again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you remember, whatever the thorn in the flesh was, Paul was persuaded that the thorn and his usefulness were incompatible. The thorn was a barrier to his ongoing usefulness. So what does he do? Wanting to be useful in the maximum way, there were three seasons of unusually concentrated, focused, pleading with God, for this thing I sought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Not for his personal convenience, but for his full usefulness. The thorn and usefulness were incompatible. He could not give up his passion for usefulness, therefore he's pleading with God to take away the thorn. And the Lord says, there's something in the equation, Paul, that you don't know, and now I'm going to tell you. 
And he has said unto me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, sometimes God's power is manifested in removing weakness. Out of weakness by faith, we read in Hebrews 11, they were made what? Strong. Sometimes faith becomes the means by which God removes weakness and brings strength. But in this instance, he says, my power is made perfect in the midst of the weakness. And once Paul heard that, he said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Wherefore, I take Pleasure in weaknesses, injuries, necessities, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am existentially, consciously weak, weak to the point where I know I cannot fulfill what I know I must fulfill unless there is an intrusion of divine power, he said, I'm ready to live with the thorn. I'm ready to live with anything that keeps me in the posture of a chastened disposition of humility and self-distrust. God says, in essence, Paul, I can take a man who thinks that his thorn is an impediment, but is my instrument to keep him looking where he ought to look for his strength and his grace. I can do that. I can't use a proud man. I can use a weak man and make my power perfect in the midst of that weakness. Now, brethren, none of us likes to be consciously weak. I was sharing with one of the brethren here, over the years, as we've had the pastor's conference, my wife and I would almost invariably say, two to three weeks before the pastor's conference, what will it be this year? God would almost invariably, I wish I had journaled it, almost invariably, bring a situation, often with me, physical health, and then on one occasion, the first chemo treatments of my wife, right on the threshold of the pastor's conference. And again and again, it was God's sacrament to take me personally down into this place again where I would see the responsibilities before me in the pastor's conference and say, Lord, with this thing having come at the wrong time, Lord, the pastor's conference is coming, Lord. This is the wrong time. And then I'd get my sense back. No, it wasn't the wrong time. It was just the right time to bring me once more to that felt awareness in facing the peculiar responsibilities and stewardships of that conference. My strength lies outside of myself in another who said, my grace is sufficient for you. And then when this ear went kaput, two weeks before the seminar, I said, Lord, It's the wrong time. I don't want to have to be worrying about my voice going right and being distracted with this buzz in my brain through my funky ear. And You know where I soaked my soul? This Lord's Day morning. 
and had fresh dealings with my Savior again, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I came out a free man. I came down and said, Dorothy, the year's all right. God's wise. and His ways are past tracing out. And I said, if those are the things God's got to use to keep this old man constantly remembering wherein his strength lies, I'm not yet ready to say, as I told one of the brothers, I said, Lord, I can't yet say, most gladly will I glory, I take pleasure. I can say, I humbly submit and embrace, knowing God's purposes, but I want to get to the place where I can say, most gladly will I glory. I take pleasure, not in some kind of sick spiritual masochism, but pleasure from the standpoint that I know it is these things that bring me to be able to say with Paul, when I am weak, he's always weak. What he's saying, when I am made to feel my weakness in concrete and specific circumstances, injuries, necessities, persecutions. He knew he was weak, theoretically. God said, I'm going to bring you there again and again, existentially. Because at the point of the existential felt weakness that drives you out of yourself to know wherein your strength lies, that's when you are strong. That's when you're strong. And brothers, if we're to have the Spirit of God resting upon us in power, then there must be that chastened spirit of humility and of self-distrust evident before we encourage any man to enter into the ministry and embrace the fact, those of us who are in the ministry, that God is determined to cultivate and enlarge and deepen that grace in us, in order that the power of Christ may rest upon us. It's interesting, isn't it, that those words of Peter come right after his directives to the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5. After he tells the elders what they are to do, the disposition with which they are to do it, then he says in verse 5, Likewise, you younger, be subject to the elder, yes, All of you, all of you, including you elders, gird yourselves with humility to serve one another. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, the same thing that God resists the proud. What a contradiction to be a proud minister of the gospel. When we preach a Savior who could say, For I am meek and lowly of heart, gentle in spirit, and we are to reflect him as well as to preach him. Well, then we come to the fourth aspect of this Christian experience that needs to some degree to be rich and deep in one who aspires to and assumes this office, and I have described it as a measure of sustained and vigorous faith in the great realities of the unseen world. A measure of sustained and vigorous faith in the great realities of the unseen world. 
Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 these very significant words referring to, again, the difficulties that he and his fellow servants face. Verse 16, Wherefore we do not faint, we don't lose heart, for though our outward man is decaying, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for the moment, works for us more and more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory while we look. And now he's going to describe what is the focus of his spiritual vision while we look at the things which are not seen. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Notice two sets of things. Two realities. There are things that are seen. And then there are things, substantial realities, that are not seen. Two sets of things. You don't have things and wispy non-entities. You don't have things, the touchable, the seeable, the buyable, the dispensable, and then mere notions that float by us about some ideas of things out there that have no real... No, there are substantial, tangible, unseen things. Things seen, things not seen. And the apostle says that which fills the gaze of his soul are those substantial things that are not seen. And surely then Hebrews gives us a clue as to how this relates to faith. In one of the closest things to any definition or description of faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things, of things not seen. And brethren, we traffic in that unseen world of the things of the Spirit, especially the things of heaven and of hell. Eternal life in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth or eternal death in the lake of fire in the company of the devil and of his angels. And I have been struck in my New Testament reading again as I'm now in the Gospel of Matthew how with our blessed Lord that world was so real and oozed out in his preaching again and again. You come through the Sermon on the Mount and when he gives as the highest motivation for radical mortification, what is it? He says it's better that you enter life maimed than having two eyes, two hands to be cast into hell. And then when he goes on to give his appeal, having described the subjects of the kingdom, the righteous rule by which the subjects of the kingdom live as he expounds the true significance of the law 
And then he describes kingdom subjects in the real, real world of housing and food and clothing and what their concerns are in that real world as they live, seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness and having gone through that broad spectrum of describing the character traits of the sons and daughters of the kingdom, the righteous rule by which they live, how they relate to this present world. And he's going to urge his hearers to enter the kingdom. With what does he urge them? Enter in to that compressed, narrow gate. Why? Wide is the gate. Broad is the way that leads, not to present frustration, to present lack of fulfillment. No, it leads to destruction. He sees the flames at the end of that road. Many there be which go in thereat. When he's seeking to get inside the conscience of mere nominal adherence of the kingdom, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, many in that day will say, and I will say to them, depart from me. And then you come into chapter 8, and he speaks of the sons of the kingdom cast out into outer darkness. Many shall come from the east and the west and north and south and enter the sons of the kingdom cast out. And then when he gives his sober warnings, woe unto you, Bethsaida, Chorazin, works done in Sodom would have lasted. It'll be more tolerable when in the day of judgment it has struck me again. Our Lord's ministry constantly oozed the vision of faith in the world to come. He knew that world like none of us know it. I don't want to say something cavalier. Whatever hell is, and it's prepared for the devil and his angels, as creator of all things, Jesus made it. He made it. He knows the horror of it that awaits the unbelieving and the impenitent. And brethren, we need to feed our souls upon those unseen realities. And no man should enter the ministry who does not have some measure of sustained and vigorous faith in the great realities of that unseen world. Bridges, on page 178, addresses this matter of the lack of faith being one of the major causes of a lack of ministerial fruitfulness. And after dealing generally with the place of faith in the life of a minister, he then begins to say at the bottom of 179, we remark also the supreme importance of the ministerial exercise of faith in its own character and office as substantiating unseen realities to the mind. The grand subjects of our commission have an immediate connection with the eternal world. The soul derives its value from its relation to eternity. The gift of the Savior opens and assures to the Christian a blissful prospect of eternity. The sufferings of the present time are supported by an habitual contemplation of things not seen by an estimate of the preponderating glory that shall be revealed in us. We realize the vanity of this transitory scene only by an accurate comparison with the enduring character of the heavenly state. Daily experience reminds us of the extreme difficulty of maintaining spiritual perceptions of eternal things. 
the surrounding objects of time and sense spread a thick film over the organs of spiritual vision and the indistinct haziness in which they often appear is as if they were not. Now a vivid apprehension of truth is the spring of a full assurance of faith such as will infuse a tenderness, seriousness, and dignity into our discourse far beyond the power of the highest unassisted talents. Faith is the master spring of a minister. Hell is before me. Thousands of souls are shut up there in everlasting agonies. Jesus Christ stands forth to save men from rushing into this bottomless abyss. He sends me to proclaim his ability and his love. I want no fourth idea. Every fourth idea is contemptible. Every fourth idea is a grand impertinence. Brethren, I do not know how any man can satisfy himself that he is called upon to be a special instrument of Christ and a special gift of Christ to his church with these great issues as the substructure of all that he does if there is not some measure of sustained and vigorous faith in the great realities of the unseen world. May God grant that those of us who are in this office will have a fresh baptism of the pressure of the reality of that world. It cost, it cost to live, to think, to pray, to preach, to counsel as men who believe. A few ticks of the clock, we're here, we're gone. A few ticks of the clock, those to whom we preach and those with whom we minister, to whom we minister and counsel, and they're gone. And the fruit and the issue of it all will be forever and forever. Well, may God grant that by his grace, any of you wrestling with the question, am I being called and fashioned to be a minister of the new covenant, will weigh these issues soberly before God. And those of us already in this office will reflect upon them, pray that insofar as they are indeed those dimensions of Christian experience that ought to be foremost with us, that we will cull out and cut off everything that militates against the cultivation of that experience and incorporate every means that, blessed by God, will increase that experience in us. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is so relatively easy to speak of these things and so hard to disengage ourselves from the trappings, the toys, and the distractions that constantly press in upon us and claw at our minds and sap away the energy of our souls. O oh, our Father, have mercy upon us. And we pray that by your grace, our love to your beloved Son may be rekindled and deepened into a white-hot passion. We pray that by the operations of your Holy Spirit, we may go deeper in our understanding and experience of the ways of your grace in the hearts of your people, 
in this overlapping of the ages when though sin has been dethroned and you have given us an earnest of the Spirit, a down payment and a pledge of a full salvation, yet there is this other principle within a wicked devil without and a seductive world that constantly bears its bosom and its thigh and seeks to drag us into forms of spiritual adultery. Oh, God, help us that we may as men be determined to go deeper in our experience of the dynamics of your grace in making us holy men in an unholy world, helping us by your grace, to grow in our understanding of your ways. We ask as well that we may grow in the graces of self-distrust and genuine humility. We pray that we will become more heavenly-minded. Lord, these are things we believe when we ask for them. We're not asking amiss to consume anything upon our lust, but to your glory and praise and to our greater usefulness. Hear us then and seal your word to our hearts, we plead, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.